0: Listening to Living Writers. My name is T Hetzel, and today in the studio, Daniel Handler. <laughs> That's you.
1: That is that is I.
0: Uh, welcome, Daniel. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for being here.
1: Well, it is a pleasure to be in such luxurious surroundings. That's the studio here at WCBN FM in Arbor.
0: <laughs> Nicely said. Have Thank you, you very much. Have you ever said that before?
1: I have said that before, uh, and I, I used to work in radio, though not in front of the microphone. Um, How,
0: what did you do then?
1: Well, uh, my one of my first uh, actually my first paid writing gig um, was writing uh, radio scripts for a show for several shows in San Francisco for a producer uh, there. He had his production company and I would write scripts most famously for the House of Blues Radio Hour uh-huh. hosted by Dan Aykroyd in the persona of Elwood Blues. Um, so I would write scripts for that show.
0: And what what year was that, Daniel? Like, give us a little because ti- you said it's your first writing gig where you got paid, right? Right to qualify it.
1: <laughs> I'm sure. Um, let's see. I think I started doing that in 1994, maybe 94 through 96, was, something like that. So that was
0: so that was post Wesleyan.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, it, 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 yeah, it was. It was post uh, Wesleyan and. Um, and and then I had a like a crummy job answering phones for a while, and then I had and then I had this job, which was, uh, for the time and considering that it wasn't very much work, was extraordinarily paid.
0: And that was that after your job from um, let's see where it was like the City College of San Francisco with right, the, that was the with first the job reams answering phones
1: at the uh, computer science department at the City College of San Francisco. That's what trips off my mouth so easily, actually. Computer Science Department at the City College of San Francisco, because I said that that so many times when I was at that job. I still say that phrase.
0: And maybe answering the phone at home uh, during that time.
1: Oh, all the time. (laughs) I would answer the phone and say, uh, Computer Science Department at the City College of San Francisco. And my wife would say, no, it isn't, honey.
0: (laughs) Come back to me. That's your home. Come back to me. Um, Well, let's see. Daniel Handler is the author of the novels The Basic Eight and Watch Your Mouth. And as Lemony Snicket, a sequence of children's novels collectively entitled A Series of Unfortunate Events.
1: Um, That's true. And that book adverbs. I'm the author I, of that one. That's right. That's Which is quite important. The one important. that you were reading the bio from is also the one I've written.
0: It seems, it seems like that should be self-evident.
1: <laughs> well, yes.
0: But not to people listening and streaming. No, that's true.
1: Because <laughs> without the visual cues. That was one of the running jokes in my radio scripts for the House of Blues Radio Hour was... Um, and now a special message for our viewers. Why are you viewing a radio? <laughs> that was are- our running gag. just <laughs> to call people I'm- viewers and then to give them a hard time.
2: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What do you <laughs> so see hello, now, Bob? So, hello,
1: viewers of WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. <laughs> Keep your eyes on the road. Don't view the radio. Listen to the radio.
0: And maybe your computer, right? Some, do your yeah, I don't. Oh know. yeah, because a lot of people. Right, I forgot the kids more. today. Yeah, listen the kids to today. the radio
1: <laughs> on the computer.
0: <laughs> the kids today. Well, um, so let's let's uh, fill out a little bit more of your your biography. Your biography, Daniel. Certainly. Um, so so you uh, you were born in San Francisco, and and I hear you went actually to Lowell High School. It is some, true. Yeah, Gus Rose went there. Somebody who... Oh, yeah? Yeah, a lecturer and writer here at the school, and so they said, hey.
1: Hey, yes. Uh, Carol Channing went to Lowell High School.
0: Not at the same time, though. No, but
1: <laughs> I, so uh, played. I, I played tuba in the uh, Lowell High School band um, oh, to dedicate the Carol Channing Theater. Um, uh, went So she came... To Lowell High School, so we were at Lowell High School at the same time <laughs> that day, but we did not attend Lowell High School at the same time. But she came to dedicate the Carol Channing Theater,
0: and and you have uh, and you played the tuba for that. Is that and something? Is that the last live tuba performance that you,
1: except for other band concerts at Lowell High School, yes. But once I graduated from Lowell High School, that was the end of my tuba days. I haven't picked up a tuba since graduation day in 1988.
0: Is, is that? Hey, nineteen eighty-eight. Hey. Was, was that,
1: <laughs>
0: um, why? So, what does it take to play the tuba? Because you know, <laughs> nothing.
1: Well, a lot of <laughs> an it, inability uh, to be embarrassed by having a having a tuba in front of you. It's a, it's a very very <laughs> instrument to play. At least to play as well as you have to play it in a high school band. Because um, it's
0: more of a series of like boom. boom
1: yes, yeah. it was. Well, we were mostly uh, we weren't. We didn't actually march. But we sat in the bleachers and played during football games. And those bass lines are um, they're pretty simple uh, for those marching songs. Um, Is
0: that what, was Was that, uh, like, how did you leap from the tuba to the accordion? Because the accordion seems to be a pretty big part of your life.
1: Um, it has become one, yes. I took piano lessons throughout my childhood. Um, and then the tuba was just something to do in band, I don't know. But uh, come to think of it, I have no idea why I I'd played the tuba. And I played it for seven years. I, pl- I started it in middle school and then I played it in high school. Um, but then when I reached uh, college, as other people who graduated uh, high school in 1988 might be able to attest, there was this uh, brief moment in American pop music where no keyboard instruments were cool whatsoever. And I wanted to be in bands. And nowadays that seems kind of unthinkable that you couldn't play the keyboard and be in a band. Of course you can. And of course you could right before that, the 80s. Yes, the 80s. But then somehow the late 80s and the early 90s, it just wasn't cool at all. And so I took up the accordion. Which was always cool. Which was cool then in a... um, In a kind of folky, R.E.M. adjunct kind of way. So the first band I was in in college, we tried to sound like the Cowboy Junkies. That was our um, modus operandi, which also seems equally unthinkable now. But
0: (laughs) (laughs) But they have some beautiful songs. It's true.
1: And they just um, released a a re-recording of the album that put them on the map. I, I just was uh, walking by a, a, a record store and in the window was a big thing that said the Trinity Sessions revisited and it occurred to me that it must be 20 years.
0: Oh, good Lord. Which is
1: kind of depressing uh, oh. for those of us who remember that album as being kind of an underground hit and not a VH1 uh, you know, kind of Starbucks wallpaper that it is today. But anyway, at the time, that's why I took up the accordion.
0: It's only going to get worse, isn't it, with things like that? Daniel. With
1: for the cowboy, well, no. I don't know. <laughs> really. They're Canadian, I believe, so it's, they're, they're probably immune. okay.
0: <laughs> they're they're always they have
1: health insurance. Happier and they they ha- you have to play a certain amount of Canadian music on Canadian radio. Oh, that, um, yeah. that's the law. So they'll I think they'll be okay for a long time. Margot Timmins, that was the name oh, of the yes, singer.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: These, she had that breathy, sweet Jane. She had that going on that seemed very sexy at the time.
0: And still does. I have had I Only
1: Know. <laughs> well, o- Especially when you the do the it, Only the listeners Daniel. of the radio can confirm that or not. Exactly. <laughs> I'm married, ladies. Sorry.
0: <laughs> well, So there's more of your biography. So you went to Wesleyan. That's, and that's right. Is that, that's where you met Lisa Brown?
1: It is, is where it- I met Lisa Brown. Uh, I suffered from a seizure disorder uh, in college, And um, I was in Chaucer class, and I had a seizure and passed out in the lap of uh, a woman uh, named Lisa Brown. So when I woke up from my seizure, we had to get to know one another. We sort of knew one another beforehand, but we definitely got to know each other better. And um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We were married. I mean, we were married many years later, but I wasn't really sure how, how to give the complete history of my right. relationship. It went the way relationships go. You know, we grew closer. We made out. You know how it works.
0: Right. <laughs> well, thank you,
1: though. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Providing
0: some titillating t- t- uh, <laughs> moments in the swing space. Um Oh, right. Well, and so so then we, Wesleyan then moved back to San Francisco upon graduation and uh, and then d- w- and with writing- around
1: there for a while and then moved to New York and bummed right. around there and then moved back to San Francisco where I live to this day.
0: And with the uh, with the with the writing, Daniel, when was uh, you said yesterday? Uh, this I should say I should have mentioned this at the top of the uh, our time. Uh, this is pre-taped, uh, and and Daniel Handler uh, was in town to give the Sarah Lamstein Children's Literature Lecture, and uh, well done.
1: Oh, thank you. I was going to say well done. You were able to put that all into a sentence. Uh, it was great fun. It was a nice talk. It It seems particularly ridiculous to talk about it when not only has it happened now, but it will have happened (laughs) even longer ago by the time this show is aired. (laughs) Remember way back then. This
0: (laughs) is a time capsule of you, but in a time warp. So (laughs) (laughs) it's all sorts of crazy. um, But but then uh, at that point, uh, Daniel, you had had mentioned – that uh, you were were writing and and had uh, you you used your job at the City College of San Francisco to get reams of paper, which was great, like um, a government grant of paper. You That's felt definitely like <laughs> how
1: I justified stealing paper from work was that I was working at the City College of San Francisco, which is a public institution, and so it had. City and state and federal mon- money, and I think I always think there ought to be more city, state, and federal money for local um, writers, for uh, local for, writers. for the arts. So I said, well, this is a way to do it. Yes, I'll steal paper.
0: <laughs> One remit. I'm time. not sure that
1: follows really, but <laughs> it's still the advice I give many a writer when they say, "What's the advice you give to a writer?" I say, "Work someplace where you can steal paper."
0: And and so that you were definitely. Uh, I identified as a writer then like you're, you're like oh, i'm a writer right? i
1: identified myself yes. as a writer i was not identified by anyone else as a writer but i wanted to be a writer yes
0: and and as a child you said that you don't understand when people say oh kids don't read because you were always reading you're a voracious reader
1: i cannot I, yes I, I it oftentimes what happens when you write for children is that people want to Know your opinion on how to make children read more, and I always think I'm I, I have no idea because I was no, I was nothing but an obsessive reader, um, in uh, in in childhood, and so I I I have nothing to add to that. To me, books are are their own reason to read, so I don't. Um, yeah, the, I, I'm never able to help that. As sympathetic as I am to the problem,
0: so so when did you so so you've always read uh, loved books, but when did you was that so sort of the natural did, did you just start writing when you were a young age as oh, well I like creating? To be a
1: writer I can't remember a time that when I didn't want to be a writer um, there my parents tell this uh, story about me that when I was five um, Someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said that I wanted to be one of those wise men who lived on top of a mountain, and other people would climb the mountain and ask him for advice, <laughs> which um, <laughs> I don't remember thinking that, but if that story is true, then that was the only other employment plan I ever had.
0: But I feel like you've realized that now with Ben Gibbard. to some extent
1: (laughs) we can't talk about that i'm afraid (laughs) there's a juicy story that must not be discussed on the radio involving uh mysticism and ben gibbard sorry everyone
0: if only we had mimosas to go with that mysticism (laughs) so that was your other career option so maybe you know uh your parents were actually relieved they thought oh how practical he wants to be a writer when that came
1: up well but it, it but really soon afterwards, I must have wanted to be a writer. I mean, I wanted to be a writer uh, when I was in elementary school. Did you write a book in
0: elementary school Were you sort of... I did. I wrote a
1: book uh, called uh, Plankton, exclamation point, about a piece of plankton (laughs) that grew large and began attacking the city. Um
0: it's oh, wonderful
1: uh yeah, yeah. I, well I <laughs> I, I, w- <laughs> I, would like I don't to. know why I, I agreed so readily that that's wonderful I don't I that book must be somewhere in my childhood house but I haven't seen it since um its initial um, printing of one copy
0: do you do you do you remember like what gave you the idea like had you just seen because it sounds like those some of those horror films where it's like no matter what it is like and it's you know like uh, bats and then like like so this horror story of like you know my first story for example was mm-hmm. something that was like a total rip off of you know the Bambi
1: story oh <laughs> and right. so
0: you wonder like and you don't know it when you're starting to write it oh there's a fire oh there's a baby well, my very bear first cub in the story was
1: about an egg um who uh, ate radios <laughs> Look like at uh, so a, a voracious kind of anthropomorphized uh, egg. That was my first story, but the first book was Plankton! <laughs> exclamation point. <laughs>
0: and, and now we can we after knowing that information, we can sort of trace your your growth as a as a writer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Too many exclamation points! Yes.
0: No. <laughs> um, and so also you you had mentioned uh, earlier uh, that the basic eight. Your, your your first novel, that it was, it was sort of heartening because you said it was, well, okay, that's not the right way to put it, heartening, because it was rejected 37 times. That's so that heartening. That wasn't heartening at the no, time, no. no. But for others that are sending out, yeah. So that was, uh, when did you have that uh, completed, the basic eight in your...
1: When did I have it completed? Let's see, probably around 95 um, and then I, I managed quite quickly to find a literary agent, which was um, a blessing. Um, but then she, uh, she she was the one who forwarded me the 37 letters of rejection um, over mm-hmm. the, the the three years that followed. Um,
0: was it your first it novel?
1: The like- novel was purchased in 1998 and published in 1999.
0: Okay. Was it um, not to get nitpicky about the dates, Daniel? But was there like other novels that you had that have been like they're put into drawers, or is this was sort of yeah? The I'd one written a novel previous to into. the Basic <laughs>
1: Eight that is still in a drawer. culturally in a in a um, plastic bin. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> and then I wrote. Uh, I started a novel. I started two novels while waiting for the Basic Eight to to sell. The first one was. Eventually became Watch Your Mouth, and the other novel was this novel that was uh, to be called A Series of Unfortunate Events, which was a kind of false start of what turned out to be 13 books.
0: Um, We'll take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers, and today, Daniel Handler. afternoon if you're just tuning in today on living writers daniel handler and uh, and that that little number was from the gothic archies daniel a few words (laughs) (laughs)
1: um I, i i believe that uh the world is a very scary place is my favorite song on the gothic archies uh record uh the tragic treasury um uh which is a collection of songs um uh, each one written about a volume in a series of unfortunate events, uh, written uh, by Mr. Stephen Merritt, best known for as leading the Magnetic Fields, but he leads a number of bands. The Sixths. The Sixths. It's so hard to say. Well, that's why. Yes. He named uh, The Sixths because um, it was the hardest thing he could think of to say on the radio. The Sixths' first album is Wasp's Nests, and the Sixths' second album is Hyacinths and Thistles. Um, he Nicely also was in a band called uh, Future Bible Heroes and then there's the Gothic Archies who had uh, one uh, EP a number of years ago called The New Despair and then he began writing uh, songs at my request or kind of at my demand uh, for each volume of a series of unfortunate events and when the 13th book was released we had The Tragic Treasury which contains 13 songs plus a couple of uh, bonus tracks as they're called in the business
0: Ooh.
1: <laughs> um, but that's my, um, that's my favorite one
0: and and you were you were actually here in town a, a couple of years ago when the end came out. That's right. And and Stephen Merritt was was on tour here with you as well. It was yeah, it
1: was sort of a gothic archies tour. Um, I play a, a, a couple of instruments on a couple of songs. Um,
0: on sixty nine love songs too, right? Oh, on sixty nine right? love songs. The accordion I, is you? I
1: the I am the accordionist. I'm I'm pretty much the adjunct accordionist for the magnetic fields. Um, so I've played on a few of their records. And on the, the Tragic Treasury, I played a couple of other uh, things. And, um, and so, I, so then we ended up touring together. So I sort of became the, the other full-fledged member of the Gothic Archies. Um, when we toured, it was uh, myself on accordion and um, uh, Mr. Merritt on a ukulele and then uh, Lemony Snicket on percussion, but he never showed up. So we had all these <laughs> percussion instruments set up. And mic'd, but um he never he never came.
0: Yeah, what about that?
1: Um, <laughs> no, he, he never uh shows up to any uh readings. It's it's a wonder that people still come to them. It's, I'm always there in his place. Do
0: you feel like a burden of that? Like sort of having to be the representative and
1: it's Do like, I feel a burden? Yes. Well <laughs> Mr. Snecken and I have worked out an arrangement that is <laughs> that's mutually beneficial so no i don't feel overly burdened <laughs> by that <laughs> well, i'm glad to hear that. I'm a relatively unburdened person
0: that's right and always accept a breath mint
1: uh well, never refuse a breath mint, oh, never is how breath- is how i like to put it um but it just happened uh last night i won't name any names here in the ann arbor community but uh I was uh, uh, um, in a social situation, and I took a tin of breath mints out of my bag and said, who wants a breath mint? And, of course, the person who I wanted most to accept a breath mint said, no, I'm fine. (laughs) Oh, you are so not. You never refuse a breath mint. (laughs) If you have a breath mint in your mouth, you don't refuse a breath mint because you never know when you're being offered a breath mint whether it's just kind of a polite sharing or whether it's a way of saying you smell. (laughs) <laughs> Badly, and you would smell better i would I wish you smelled of peppermint
0: exactly, and it's issuing forth um, well well uh yesterday you were you were also talking a lot about like the the, the birth of lemony snicket um uh well, not the actual literal right. birth, but um when you were talking on the uh, i guess calling up you were doing research, and it just the name came to you, and you honestly had and you just said it to on the phone. To to uh, uh, you were signing up for some right wing well literature. yeah I was
1: calling um. <laughs> um conservative organizations uh in order to get their uh their materials sent to me so I could mock them in the Basic Eight which I was writing at the time on stolen paper um, <laughs> from the City College of San Francisco and uh, I didn't want to be permanently on the mailing list of such organizations um, and so a woman on the phone asked me so what's your name sir so we can send you these materials and i just opened my mouth and said lemony snicket isn't
0: that amazing because that just like popped out it could lemony
1: yes and i I didn't even it didn't even sound like two words when it came out of my mouth you know i I just that's your first i I just (laughs) was some short circuit in the brain um, you know, because John Smith, for instance, would have been a perfectly acceptable thing to say and um, and she said, "Is that spelled how it sounds and I said, yes, and uh please read that back to me because I had no idea how it sounded like it was spelled um, and then it became this joke, and this was long before I thought I would write anything for children, let alone write anything under a different name um, and it became a joke uh uh between my friends. And I, who, uh, uh, between my friends and me, uh, and uh, one birthday they chipped in and went to Kinko's and made business cards that said Lemony Snicket. And as my job, it said Rhetorical Analysis. And then for a while, and so I would go to bars sometimes and say, like, hello, I'm Lemony Snicket. I'm in rhetorical analysis. Like, if you ever need me, give me a call. Um, and uh, we had a cocktail called the Lemony Snicket. And oh,
0: what's that made of? What are the parts? of
1: Well, it was born, you know, this again was in my youth, straight out of college, and no one had any money. Uh, but a friend of ours had a lemon tree in her backyard that was... Uh, produced unspeakable amounts of lemons. Just, you couldn't... and you, you, There's nothing really you can do with a whole lot of lemons. You know, she would say, oh, I'm going to make a lemon cake. I and mean, then it turns out, with a lemon cake, you need, like, a, a juice and a half. And, um, you know, we needed something where you could use 80 lemons. And so we... Pulped them and juiced them, and then we um, I, the the first round, the first time we made lemony snickets, it was white rum. It was for some reason a bottle of white rum that was lying around, and we had that and a little bit of uh, soda. But it but it kind of became whatever you could do with Amanda Wiley's lemons <laughs> and liquor was a lemony snicket.
0: That's good. So it's constantly sort of changing too. Well, which is the history.
1: I I like cocktails a lot, and the history of cocktails is always about that. That um, you know that that there's all sorts of kind of uh, recipe. You know, like anything else, like any other kind of cooking. There's cake, but there's none of the cake. There's no real cake. They're all different kinds of cake, and um, martinis and old fashions and manhattans. They all used to be about how it was flavored because the liquor during Prohibition it was kind of whatever liquor you could get. Um, so you would call it whatever cocktail. you could you could drum up really.
0: It's see yeah, So cocktails have sort of a, a, a valued place in the in the the history of uh, writers in general and you.
1: <laughs> you. Writers in general and me. That's right.
0: Because <laughs> whether you're a
1: writer in general or me,
0: or a general, you might enjoy cocktails. Because <laughs> over sidecars, that's when you you sort of first started talking about uh, lemony snicket to one of your your pals who you were actually.
1: Um, well she wasn't really a pal. She oh, oh. was uh she was an editor at a publishing house. But you um, were just
0: kind then and took her out when she lost her job.
1: Um I did. Uh um yeah, sorry. There was sorry. a sudden no- <laughs> a strange, sudden ambient noise in the studio, but we're ignoring resume. it. Um This was still before The Basic Eight uh, had been published, and um, in desperation, my literary agent had sent it to a couple of editors who uh, edited novels for young adults, because the novel is set in a high school. And it's not really a young adult novel. And particularly then, the climate has changed for that uh, now, but back then, it definitely wasn't for teenagers. You couldn't publish books for teenagers that had sex and drugs and... Uh, Murder.
0: Um, Only plucky characters, as you said. Well, only kind
1: of, um, (laughs) yeah, uh, very cheerful high school novels were being published. And uh, so this editor read it and she said, well, I can't publish it, but I do think you ought to write something uh, for children. And then she was laid off and then I took her out for drinks and then she owed me drinks and she said, "Um, but I still think you ought to write something uh, for children. And I had been working on this novel, a series of unfortunate events that I had then abandoned because it... It wasn't making any sense to me, and it suddenly became clear that if the protagonists were children, the story was much more interesting and much more workable. But I still thought it was a dreadful idea. I just thought, you, I, I cannot possibly tell anyone in a professional setting, I would like to write 13 books about terrible things happening to children over and over again, and it would be called A Series of Unfortunate Events. That, I mean, that's, that just seemed obscene. And so... Um, she owed me some drinks, and and she wanted me to write for children, and so I said, "Look, w- let's meet in a bar. I'm not going to write a letter saying what kind of books I'm going to write. I'm not going to write a sample. I'm not going to do all of the professional things you're supposed to do if you're going to pitch a book, which already seemed as a as a as a novelist seemed absurd for me because you don't really you you never pitch a novel." um you, you, particularly when you're at a beginning you, you, know, you have a don't novel. go to, yeah you write it and then you try to sell it and so the idea that I didn't even have a novel to sell in fact I had a novel that I'd already abandoned even I knew was worthless um and uh so we met in a bar and uh I got there early and had you know one round of drinks um so that uh I would for courage and then I told her this idea that I had and She loved it, and I was really embarrassed because I thought it meant that she was a lightweight and that she was going (laughs) to call me the next morning and say, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm really sorry. And then you know, I, I how can I tell this broke, desperate writer that I thought it was a great idea and I was definitely going to buy the book? And then in the cold light of day, that I wouldn't—that was my fear. And then um, she uh, she called me the next morning and said, uh, "I'm uh, I'm stone cold sober and I still like the idea and um, and uh, let's let's do these books." And so we did.
0: And the rest, to to to, as they say. And then. <laughs> And then you had, of course, the the the. It's been made into a movie. the The first,
1: the first three volumes. And, yes.
0: And um and and y- you were in on that for a while, but then stepped out of that. Was that an unfortunate series of events during that time, or was it just better? Um, to... Well, it
1: took five years to make the movie, so it was everything. It there were parts of it that were unbelievably pleasurable and parts of it that were really terrible. And um really difficult. And I wrote eight, well, uh, practically nine drafts of uh, of a screenplay. And then I said to them, I just don't think I can do another draft. And they said, that's so funny. We don't think you can do another draft either. Goodbye. So I was um, fired. Uh, and from your own? From Well, uh, uh, um, but I guess
0: it's not your own in that way anymore maybe. that a film was becoming is never apparent. owned by
1: the, by the writer yeah. Yeah. and the whole idea was that it was adapted for film so I didn't actually I, I don't have that kind of uh, stick in the mud attitude that, that, a, that a film ought to be exactly like the book I think you have an author's unfettered vision in the book and a film is just a version of it so I um, Someone's like I don't understand her. that. I, I'm, yeah. I'm always curious if people like the film or they don't like the film and I'm always curious when I see other films from books how i like them and how they've changed it but i never think i I, I never think to myself that's outrageous how they changed (laughs) it that shouldn't have been changed because you could go and read the book that's the nice thing about literature
2: yeah it's not just in
1: theaters for a couple of weeks you can actually pick up a book anytime
0: and it's not erased off the planet Because, yeah. Yes. Let's hope.
1: (laughs) Not so far.
0: (laughs) Knocking on my head now. Um, So uh, you also just uh, actually did a pick of your own for um, uh, the... Children's, you you know, talking about what books should children read, and um, and there's an Italian writer, and there's bears invading Sicily. Uh,
1: yes, Dino Buzzati's uh, children's book, The Bears' Famous Invasion of Sicily, which was my uh, favorite book when I was a child, and, um, and and then a couple of years ago, I abused my power as a as a children's author uh, within HarperCollins and kind of bullied them into putting this book back into print. Um, Which um, makes
0: sense because you said it was also just strangely re-released over in Italy around the same time. Well, Dino Buzzati
1: is a fairly well-known writer in Italy. But of other
0: things, uh, right?
1: Right. As um, kind of a political novelist is my impression of his profile. And um, so it's almost as if there was one children's book by by Joan Didion or something. And, And so it's not that unusual that he that book is uh, more easily found in italy but i was <laughs> i really wanted it to be easily found in america um and i think it's had limited commercial success uh this american re-release of it but uh, i'm proud of it anyway
0: and and that that was when you were giving gifts out um like that year, you for all the, the people you knew, was that the gift that you were? <laughs>
1: you I gave through. it to a, to a lot of people, um, and I, I, I recommend it at every opportunity. Whenever I'm here at WCBN FMN Arbor, I try to encourage our viewers <laughs> <laughs> to go out and purchase a copy of Dino Buzzati's The Bear's Famous Invasion of Sicily in stores now.
0: And also the Egypt game.
1: <laughs> well, the Egypt Game is kind of a classic of children's literature. I don't think I have the to Egypt read game, that actually. Uh, really? Yeah, I would like um, to read that. It's I a like. wonderful book, and mm-hmm. um, and that's always been available. And much as I love Zilfa Keatley Snyder, the Egypt Game doesn't need too much publicity. It needs no help from me. Yes, um, only
0: only a glass of root beer. You're listening to Living Writers uh, with Daniel Handler. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, Daniel Handler in the chair.
1: Yes, here I am in the chair.
0: <laughs> Ahoy matey!
1: <laughs> is this
0: is this for real? That your current project is um, uh, to do with pirates, or is that? I
1: am. I'm writing a novel about pirates.
0: Can we do the rest of this in sort of some sort of pirate brogue?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> do you mind
0: if I do? <laughs>
1: no, no, go ahead. Um I'm um I'm pre- I'm very terrible at any kind of accents or uh jargon. Um I um I uh, so I would be I I would make a miserable pirate at least linguistically. Actually across the board I would be a miserable pirate. I'm not particularly brave. I'm really not violent. I don't um uh, avarice doesn't flow through my veins with the proper fury required of a pirate. Um, I know nothing about steering ships. I'm not strong. Hoist I don't the main respond sail. well to traditional <laughs> leadership. <laughs> so why
0: pirates? <laughs> why now? Uh... <laughs>
1: um, I, I just, um, well, it's a novel I'm working on, so it's hard to okay. talk about it yes. with any... Um, real knowledge uh, from myself and certainly not from anyone else but um, but I just thought I, it's, it's, I, I think pirates are interesting um, the idea first came from the novel when I read that pirates used to have, uh, some pirates had uh, compatriots on land who yes. would sell false maps to sailors who would believe they were going around a cape or something but really they were heading into a cove uh, where the pirates could get them and yes. I found it fascinating, a false map. That's I ne- it, That had never occurred to me. And I found that idea very beautiful.
0: Because books are supposed to be true. Maps are supposed to be true, <laughs> right? Like these things that until you realize things aren't always um, Well, and also true. now
1: um, the world is so thoroughly mapped, you couldn't really have that problem. You know, you couldn't. Wander the streets of Ann Arbor and say, "I really want to get to Chicago," and someone could say, "Oh, it's just like six blocks away. Here is a map." You know, no one that that wouldn't be a good. No <laughs> one would fall for that. There are plenty of maps, and everyone knows that, how far Chicago is. And there is um. Uh, there's such so much more knowledge of the world and try to imagine uh, negotiating a space where you were really at the mercy of some piece of paper
0: right right um, or or for example like lights off ashore because in cornwall in england they also they it was called wrecking like they'd purposely um, wreck people on the land yes. would wreck and then
1: you Oh know, yeah absolutely and, all sorts of 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 tricks like that a treachery um,
0: <laughs> yes well, pirates, so that's so that's something to look forward to.
1: Yes, I'm um, looking forward to continuing to work on the book.
0: And stretching. Should we say a quick, would you like to say a word about stretching? Um, like I just health. read an
1: article on the importance of stretching and that uh, orchestra conductors tend to live longer uh, on average than normal people. And one theory is that their arms are over their heads with more regularity uh, than most of us. And so... Under the usual seventy-two-hour spell, an article that one finds compelling, I'm stretching all the time now. Soon that will stop. <laughs> but, <laughs> I used to have fresh juice every morning. You know, you read something and then you try it for a while and then you just give up.
0: Um, but not on writing. <laughs> nice no. segue there, right? No, Never well, give I don't up read on writing. writing very
1: much. I'm actually reading right now a book by uh, Italo Calvino. I think that's how one pronounces it, uh, called Six Memos for the New Millennium, which is on writing, but, uh, and, which I found lovely. And then, um, and then your university's own, uh, Nicholas Delbanco has a wonderful book on writing, uh, called The Lost Suitcase. Um, but there's, uh, but for the most part, I find books on writing to be kind of tedious and strange.
0: And, And you, you didn't go to an MFA program, did you?
1: I didn't, no.
0: And, um, well, you found other forms of funding and what sort of, uh, <laughs>
2: I'm sorry to make jobs it. is the word
1: you might be looking for. Yeah, um, yeah. I just, uh, I, I guess I that's found why, for like the, for the years following my undergraduate education, I found various positions that allowed me time to write. um, I uh, I had a, a very small grant um, from the university, and I uh, and I warmed my way into a year of free housing and stayed on the campus of Wesleyan University for one more year. Uh, I then had this job with the computer science department of the City College of San Francisco, which was paid as a city employee, and it was a half time job. So the money was good enough right. that I could pay my rent and write half time. And then I found this radio. A gig, which meant that there was a lot of writing. It was a monthly, we produced shows monthly, and so you would do a lot of writing for a few days, and then you would have a lot of time off. And that was also perfect. And I always thought if I couldn't find a position, I would uh, perhaps enroll in an MFA program that would allow me the time. But that that was my own right, obsession. No, yeah, I knew that, that I was slowly getting better as a writer, and then I was going to throw away a lot, and I had uh, mentors who I kept in touch with and other people who read my work. Uh, but it was the it was the time to write that felt most dear to me. So um, so I'm I'm not um, I'm not one of those people who doesn't have an MFA and gets all snooty about about oh I did it the old fashioned way or something. I just didn't it it didn't I didn't need it uh, in terms of the time.
0: So um, well that's good to hear. I like you, Daniel Handler.
1: Oh well, thanks. You seem nice yeah. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's here we are
0: at the surface. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about adverbs. Sure. Um, national bestseller, Adverbs um, by Daniel Handler. <laughs> the one book I neglected to mention in uh, your yes, introduction. My most recent
1: novel, Adverbs.
0: And it was, and it was, I uh,
1: always like national bestseller because I feel it's the polite way of saying this was not on the New York Times bestseller list.
2: No, not, I, I, not to, I
1: don't mean to mock. The, the performance <laughs> of my novel, or something, but I always feel that is kind of a euphemism.
0: <laughs> um, and it's um, and so out, it was out in hard hardcover in 2006, and uh, or wait, or just uh, released in paperback. Well, I hold the paperback yes, in my Yes, it it's in paperback hand. now. Um, now, so, so this is the. the the writing project and you're actually touring now i looked on your site with um the the composer's dead and this is something that you created with nathaniel stuckey and that's
1: uh right that uh, is a a piece um uh for narrator and orchestra uh not unlike peter and the wolf uh that introduces the orchestra to people uh who might not be familiar with it um and the uh San Francisco Symphony commissioned the piece uh, about a year and a half ago, and so we debuted it there. And then it's been performed all over the place. It's, it was the most uh, performed uh, piece of music by a living composer, uh, uh, orchestral kind of composer, last year. It was performed oh, all over the place. Oh, that's a wonderful uh, title so,
0: then for it, too. Yeah, like,
1: <laughs> it's a national bestseller. <laughs> uh, and, and so I've performed it, uh, I've been the narrator at a number of performances, and so I just uh, went and did that up in the town of Kitchener Waterloo, outside of Toronto. Um, and... Oh, a hotbed for symphonies. Right. Uh, Well, they actually have a very fine symphony. Uh, It's Canada. Public Funding for the Arts is such that they have a very fine symphony that actually goes to other surrounding communities and performs, and it brings classical music to people in ways that are uh, often lacking in this great nation of ours.
0: Um, And and when you say it was commissioned... I'm sure
1: now that I've complained about it on the radio, everything will change. That's Right.
0: (laughs) Ah, the power.
1: That's right. John McCain is listening right now saying, oh, I just had a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) That handler's right.
0: I'm sure you hear that many times a day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) From John McCain. He will not leave me alone, that guy. (laughs) I love that Calvino book, dude. Man, go back to... Yeah, never we, mind. We, uh, well,
0: he's on a bus tour John right McCain now. John McCain is not
1: my candidate of choice. I don't mind admitting.
0: Well, yeah, you formed um, like the, the political action committee, right, for the liberal uh, the uh, well, liberal I, uh, candidates? Is it's
1: that true? Mr. Stephen Elliott, who formed uh, Lit Pack, um, which is a, a public action committee that raises money for progressive candidates uh, nationwide. I am an enthusiastic participant. I um, put it as Stephen Elliott, uh, a wonderful writer and uh, an activist, who formed that organization.
0: So do you, so you do you um you're you're actually you're you're doing something, aren't I try you? I to put my money where my
1: <laughs> mouth is. Yes. <laughs> um,
0: and and when you say that the the latest that the composer's dead was commissioned in San Francisco, so was this an idea that they came up with because you, they that the, the town saw that you had incorporated like music into for example a series uh, of unfortunate no events, it's or... just
1: that um nathaniel uh Stuckey is a composer i knew personally and i uh, admired his work and we wanted to uh, work together and then one day uh i was asked to be the narrator for a performance of peter and the wolf and peter and the wolf is actually a beautiful piece of music but the story and the narration is really annoying i find and also it's just performed to death and orchestras are tired of it, and parents are tired of taking their children to it. And so I said, "Hey Stukey, we could do something like this." And then we asked the San Francisco Symphony, and they said, "Oh, why not?"
0: Oh, I get, I, I'm eager to see it. Actually, uh,
1: well, it, it, it will be in picture book with CD in the back form uh, next year from Harper Collins with illustrations by uh, Carson Ellis, who's a wonderful illustrator, uh, most known for uh, uh, doing the album covers for the Decemberists. Um, uh, uh whose leader Colin Malloy is uh Ms. Ellis husband or uh, fiance. They're about to get married. So I could hear it. So you could I hear could, it. So
0: I could hear it. Be... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's to stop me. No, it's well not, not a...
1: <laughs> it's hard to hear now unless you're in, in a in a, a symphony hall, but um uh but it it will be uh the audio version will it's we'll in be the out. back of this beautiful picture book that Ms. The... Ms. Ellis is drawing as we speak. I hope.
0: Hooray! (laughs) And and so she might
1: be having coffee now, but she's working on it in (laughs) general. You got to give her time. Very moment, what she's doing. Everyone has their own rhythm. That's right. I'm not giving her a hard time at all. She's working very hard. She's almost done.
0: What's your work rhythm like then, Daniel? With your, is it? Do you? It seems like you might have multiple projects that you're, you've got going. So it's not something where you get on a track and then uh, run it through to the end obsessively. Or or Um, how is it for you?
1: I. It is kind of more like that i just uh I work fairly quickly and i work uh and I work pretty long hours um That's just something that I'm lucky enough to be able to do so on an average day, I write from about nine to about three, which is a lot i mean the the biggest luck is that i just i have time to do that I don't um have any other job but writing um so i um I'm not correcting papers or uh mopping floors or um selling electric pianos or any number of occupations that one might have um so uh so i all, i was always in quest of a position that found me enough time to write and uh to my astonishment the position that has uh, allowed me enough time to write has been novelist who who would have thought <laughs> um, so uh yeah so i'm very lucky that way
0: and and so, and when you're, and, and it also you're lucky, but and plucky. <laughs> Just kidding! I know you don't like them.
1: <laughs> i <I'm> all <laughs> sorts of words that rhyme with "ucky." <laughs> oh
0: no! Um, uh, but it also seems like, in a way, if you're saying, uh, on average, you write from nine to three. You also seem to maybe guard that time. Like it's something that is a a discipline for you. It's not. I as try to stay you... off the
1: phone. I'll say that. Um, but I really like writing, and so I'm not. Um, Easily distracted by cable television or anything. Um, I'm um, yeah. I, I I like to write. So and do
0: you have um because you have a you have a family.
1: Uh, um, I do as well. I have a wife and son. And
0: and so do you have a studio that's sort of out outside the house or is it just so you're uh, fine no? My working? wife
1: does actually. She is an illustrator and she has a studio outside the house. But I have a little office uh, in my in the house and um, I take my kid to school in the morning. Uh, which kind of passes for a commute? You know, I, I I leave my house and then I come back as if I'm arriving at a workplace, even though it's the same place I left. Um, and I uh, make a bottle of tea and I'm ready to go.
0: That sounds. And then it, does it go with a school day? Then you go and um, and when you go to collect him, then it's then you're finished. Uh, writing no, we or? have
1: um, we have childcare when his school oh, okay. Day is okay. So we're oh. lucky there, there too.
0: Yeah. Well, not to, um, not, to, <laughs> not like I'm trying to find out about exactly how you live your life every minute. No,
1: started. that's fine. More talking or the about- movements of my child. That would be... <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. What route
1: do they take home, exactly?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> is he afraid of strangers? Or is there some delicious food that could, say, lure him somewhere? Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when um, <laughs> have you already read the stories uh, to to him? Uh, or, or no? Or are you making um, new stories that are more specific just to Otto? Or what?
1: Um, uh, no, my wife illustrates picture books, and he definitely uh, he likes the two picture books that she has uh, published. Um, he's um,
0: what are they called? I mean, he's
1: young; he's four, oh, okay. so he's not. Uh, and although I've heard of children as young as four uh, having the books. Uh, Having the snicket books read to them, um, my son is n- has nowhere near the the um, the fortitude and bravery for such dreadful stories. He's um, he's uh, extremely mild mannered, so um, we read. So he likes. I mean, there's a bunch of books he likes that we read to him. Uh, right now, he's learning how to swim in real life, so he likes books about uh, people or creatures usually who are learning how to swim. Um. So Ooh. uh yeah I mean he loves uh books to, sometimes to a kind of heartbreaking extent we taught him early on that if he ever if he hurts himself or he's upset about something, that let's read a book and that will make you feel better. And so sometimes now, he, he just recently he banged his head on something and then while crying, did this kind of sad stumble to the, bookshelf, the bookshelf and grabbed oh. a book and only then would be embraced by us. And, it, <laughs> and we thought, okay, maybe we've pushed this literacy thing a little too far. <laughs> we, we pictured him, you know, as an adult, like, call 911 and and get a book because you'll be at the waiting room probably. So you, you'll want that. What does one read when one's having a heart attack? You know.
0: <laughs> um, at least you're starting so, the dial nine one one first. Not, I mean, so I guess
1: we'll it's better than grabbing shelf. a Game Boy, but still grabbing nothing before you accept <laughs> <laughs> the embrace of others when you've been hurt might be okay.
0: Um, I think that's just your plug for um, young people reading at an early age. <laughs> Teach your children young. That's right. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers uh, today, Daniel Handler. Um, and thanks to Alex Hodge for being an, a wonderful engineer. We'll be right back. Oh. Listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, living writers today. Daniel Handler, do you want to say it too, Daniel?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm more than happy to admit I'm a living writer, not dead yet.
0: Fortunately, um, well, let's talk a little bit about adverbs. Um, Certainly, since and it's interesting because it's been and we we don't we don't have too much time left, which is um, as as to use one of your words now that I'll always associate with you dreadful um, but adverbs a novel which is interesting because it it is it, it, it appears like more of a short stories uh, that have then have connections so was this your idea for it to be billed as a novel or what what did you were you just uh, you just write yes. it, right? You're not like I know.
1: <laughs> you just do that. I just write it. Um, no, I, I to me it it uh, is most certainly a novel, although its structure is is fragmentary, and there are certain and, and each chapter of the novel has its own kind of arc. So I'm it's not as if I'm puzzled by accusations that it's a short story collection, but to me it. I don't mean um, to
0: be accusatory. Oh, no. I wasn't meaning that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can defend myself in court by good woman uh it, but it uh it, it, it is it is a book about love and it's a book about a bunch of people in love and a bunch of people who imagine themselves in love in all different ways and and uh the different ways that love can go and so to me that was uh all one novel um i was uh inspired very much by the book of laughter and forgetting, which has a similar yeah. uh structure that it is um it's kind of a theme and variations uh and uh and then i am so uh, I said to the publishing house, "I think it's a novel, and that they were a game for that." I mean, um, uh, I think if only on a, on a capitalist level, um, uh, novels tend to sell better than short stories. So um, they, if so, they were happy to call it a novel. They would have been happy to call it a collection of short stories too. But, but. Um,
0: in, in your as you first, but wrote... for me it's
1: a novel. For other people, I, I guess it's short stories, but that's fine too.
0: No, 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 no. It's a novel. I don't.
1: I... Other people, it's a doorstop. You know, <laughs> it works on a number of different levels. <laughs>
0: <No>. <laughs> when you first uh, wrote, had this project, Daniel. Did you have that? Um, which, which story is it? The one that works as an essay, where you actually the voice comes in, and there's a moment where it sounds like your. Um, you're talking about well, a, a like a
1: portion what... of the novel called Truly, in which yes. I try to explain uh, how the rest of the structure, how the rest of the novel is working. Which is again, I stole completely from Milan uh, Kundera in the book of Laughter and Forgetting. Um, I, uh, I normally, when I write a novel, I uh, kind of get all my all my ducks in a line and do a lot of outlining and a lot of research and the adverbs was uh written in stolen moments between volumes of a series of unfortunate events and i didn't really know what i was doing for a long time it felt like different drafts of the same short story and um it, at times it even felt like it was kind of some kind of non-fiction uh, philosophical uh, type work.
0: There's many wonderful moments. I'm glad you said that, Daniel, because I wrote here on notes like grand statements with repercussions like yes. go throughout the book.
1: Well, that's almost what I thought it was. I was reminded of um, very cheesy uh, self-help or financial help uh, books, you know, where someone says, uh, Bob and Alice are having trouble in their marriage or, you know, uh, Graham is a man who earns $50,000 a year and How can he save for his retirement? Then in a way, I thought I was saying, uh, love is like this, and let's look at this example like this. And so I thought even for a while that it was that kind of nonfiction book. Uh, But I gradually realized that it it felt like a novel um, uh, unified uh, more by theme than by some um, beginning, middle, and end uh, the way my other novels and and most other novels are uh, are structured. And, so and it was fun to to try that and right.
0: also unified by the the images that you have throughout. Like for example, um, the the magpie. Where in one story it could be it's um, there it's an, an exercise that children have to to learn about, like, the magpie, but then it, the magpie, and it's different, it's attractive and appealing, and then there's these echoes of that throughout the
1: book. Uh, yeah, um, there are a lot of magpies in the book, uh, a lot of cocktails, a lot of taxis, um, and all of those are um, are kind of characters in the book and also kind of uh, philosophical, rhetorical symbols that a magpie is something that finds shiny objects it's, that th- it's attracted to, which is kind of like love. and Yes. And a cocktail is... Uh, mysterious and uh, Intoxicating and and <laughs> Intoxicating and then um, the taxi cab which uh, which begins and ends the novel uh, their journey in a taxi I always think is an interesting metaphor for relationships because it's kind of about the journey and it's kind of about the destination and kind of one person's driving the car but kind of the other person's in charge of where you're going and I love taxi cabs uh and and the so possibility to, yeah, me, to me yeah yeah better than the bus to the character says so actually the taxi cab I took to uh here to the campus at Ann Arbor from uh Detroit was one of the cleanest taxi cabs I'd ever been in it looked like a like a like a drawing of a taxi cab. It was so clean. I couldn't figure out too, but I got in. I was suspicious of it in some way, and I couldn't figure out why. And then I suddenly realized there's not a trace of dirt, and at the end of winter, right, in right. a taxi cab from Detroit, not a city known for excessive cleanliness, um, to put it mildly. Uh, so. Um, So thank you, Taxi Driver. (laughs) If you're listening out there to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, thank you, Taxi Driver with the clean cab. Um. And those with the filthy cabs, I love you too.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, and I wondered if that's a way of of working because not only sorry to go back to this the the images and and you because you use entire phrases where you'll but you'll put them in places that uh, are unexpected or in characters' mouths that um it's so that they have a different meaning but hearkening back to earlier parts and and I noticed in your your talk yesterday you you did that too where you had these echoes where you kept bringing back either the woman that fell down the stairs and the or the you know um, well it's, it's a, yeah it's, it's definitely- A hallmark of uh,
1: my work, in a way that um, that sentences or phrases or images um, come back twice. It's all over the Snicket books that um, when someone says it takes a village to raise a child, the Baudelaires end up uh, in a village in which everyone is in charge of them. They're they're being raised collectively by all of these bossy adults, Um, and (laughs) uh, and that's just something I always do when I was I started in college. I wrote a lot of poetry, uh, as we all did, I'm sure, but um, I really thought I was going to become a poet, and I was most attracted to the Sestina, which is this poem uh, 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 form where you have, uh, you choose six words that. Um, end lines, and they end lines in all these different configurations in each stanza, and I just And loved then they that. become
0: the final lines. And a- then, in the, the, yeah, their and then they're all
1: jammed together yes. in this kind of uh, finale at the end, and uh, you have to choose your words very carefully, and there often have to be words that ca- that mean... With multiple thing- uh, uh That can mean different things. Um, you know, you can choose blue to mean sad, and refer to a colour. Um, and, uh, and I loved that kind of... Uh, that slipperiness of language, and certainly it's all over adverbs, because... Part of the point of love is that uh, people talk of little else, and yet there's no real, reliable explanation for it at all.
0: So. Yes, yes, and the layering involved, and the the mis- mistakes and missteps, and good things. <laughs> but it's it's yes, it, they're
1: good parts of love too. but No one ever talks about those.
0: It's it's uh, well, yeah. Too bad we don't have more time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll all hear the stories of your love life when the microphone is off. <laughs>
0: promises. Oh yes. Um yeah, well I am one, I'm glad that you said that Daniel because I did I did feel like adverbs was uh, working on a, poet, a poetic level which is um yeah, the, as the whole as the the idea of the structuring. So that was what a nice finish! <laughs> Hooray!
1: <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a nice time.
0: Thanks, thanks so much. Yeah, nice. I actually hate that word, nice. How do you feel about the word nice? What do you?
1: Um, I have no strong feelings about it. Lately, I've been in uh, uh, in love with the word wrong because if you put it in front of almost uh, any noun, it becomes fascinating. You know, if you if you say uh, wrong giraffe, he took a walk down the wrong street. Suddenly, that's that's fragrant with with story. <laughs> Um, it could mean that he's lost, or it could mean that he's about to die, or it could mean that something's <laughs> wrong with the street, or something like that. Uh, so, uh, but nice, I haven't really explored yet. But there's time.
0: There's time. Well, thank you, Daniel Handler. Thank you for having me. And uh, come back anytime. <laughs> Any <time. laughs> well, I'll call first. Ne- next time, the accordion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> next time, the accordion. I think that's what we say at the end of a Seder.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and thanks again to Alex Bellhudge for engineering. Um, thanks for listening and streaming. Uh, Chicago, Seattle, Florida. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. You've been listening to Living Writers. Until next time. <laughs>
2: This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, May 14, 2008, from Pacifica Station KPFK in LA. I'm Aura Abogado. On today's